0: Charles Curtis on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fantastic, Levy. Thanks for having me. So you just published a book called The Original Grand Cruise of Burgundy. Yep. And what was that like, and how did that get started? You know, it was
1: my first book ever, and uh, something I always wanted to do. It was the culmination of a project that really took about 15 years. I was mulling it for about 12 years and actually writing it for about three years.
0: What was the original origin of the idea?
1: The original idea came about when I was uh, studying for the MW exam, and one of the, the MWs who was teaching on the course gave me a photocopied uh, uh, edition of Laval's book uh, on the Burgundy. And so I started reading, and I thought, it's the coolest thing ever. And so uh, I kept talking about it to people and uh, drawing blank stares. Nobody knew what it was. It had never been translated into English, and I was completely aghast. So I thought, uh, one day I thought, well, that's what I've got to do. Who is Laval? Dr. Laval, Dr. Jules Laval was a medical doctor, a botanist, a chemist, uh, all around science guy in the way that uh, people were in the 19th century and uh, a resident of Dijon. So he loved wine, wrote about wine. He was not in the wine trade, but, uh, but he knew just about everybody that was. And so he wrote a very detailed description of all the vineyards, who owned them and what was special about them. And then sort of before that and after that for each of the villages he would give a little of the history what other people had thought and it was really to me it was almost like the rosetta stone of burgundy because it gave you all the secrets uh that uh, you ever wanted to know it's a fantastic reference it was a book mostly about vineyards or there was other stuff or it's a huge book and a lot of it really doesn't apply today you know it's a it there's a very lengthy section an introductory section, which I did translate, that talks about the history going back to Roman times, uh, some of it's sort of mythological and not really uh, accepted by historians today, but uh, a lot of it's really very interesting, very factual, very well, extremely well-researched, and... Um, Then he gets into a very long section about uh, planting grapes and growing grapes, and obviously before Phylloxera, the techniques were completely different. This is one of the things that I never really thought about until I read Laval's book, but do you know that, that most of the great vineyards of Burgundy, back sort of prior to Phylloxera, so when Laval was writing in the in the 1850s for example a lot of the those vineyards were actually one gigantic plant underneath the ground because they they propagated the vines by a method called provenage where they would bury one of the the shoots so effectively it was all connected to the same rootstock underneath and of course nothing like that exists today so that whole section is pretty much irrelevant like, unless you're a historian I'm enough of a historian but not not uh, hung up on that to me the essence of of the book though is a sort of middle section where he went village by village and talked about what were the greatest vineyards. And is a very clear exposition of each of the different vineyard sites and how they related to each other, who owned them, why they were special. To me, that piece of Laval is, is essential Burgundy. I mean, it, it's those... Vineyards have been planted for, in some cases, a thousand years, 1,200 years, and they were the same 1,200 years ago as they're going to be 1,200 years from now as they are today. So that part totally germane to today's wine drinkers. And then Laval gets into other sections on winemaking, which winemaking has changed a bit in 150 years. So, so I didn't, you know, that was the really the stumbling block for the first. 12 years of my project, I guess, was uh, figuring out what to do with all this other stuff. And eventually I just decided to ignore it because I'm good at ignoring stuff. And uh, I, so I started translating the village by village descriptions of the different vineyard sites and and what it meant to live all and putting it up on a blog. And occasionally I'd hear somebody would say, oh, I saw that post you made and uh, people were vaguely interested. So I just kept chipping away at it. It took a long time. And as I was going through, I realized there was another author that was similar to Laval, also a medical doctor. This is a medical doctor that owned vineyards, so, though, Dr. Denny Morlo, and uh, he lived in Volney and uh, was maybe slightly biased because he had a pretty big estate, but um, but he was uh, thirty, writing 30 years, you know, a generation essentially before Laval, also very insightful, slightly different style, but... Uh, came to some of the same conclusions and in some instances differed radically. So I thought, okay, there's not a way to just like footnote this. You got to translate the whole thing. So I translated the same bit of Morló, leaving out again, the parts on wine making, grape growing, uh, translating some of the chemistry. Cause the guy was a chemist and got a little tough sledding there for a
0: while. But, um, I could see that being a couple of years trying to yeah. work through some chemistry. Yeah, exactly.
1: Know. Especially in not your native language. But, um, but anyhow, I, you know, I made it through. And then uh, and then I realized there was another guy before both of them, André Julien, who had written a book, which the name I just love, Topography de tous les vignobles connus, So the topography of the, the landscape of all known vineyards, which is uh, exactly what he did. This guy, writing in 1815, wrote about vineyards in South Africa, wrote about vineyards in in all parts of europe uh russia i mean everywhere in the world really but he was a burgundian so the section on burgundy was fat boy and the other sections were were somewhat less compelling but I, the russian one not super yeah yeah i was not uh on the edge of my seat for that part but in fact i've never read uh julian cover to cover but the part on burgundy i thought okay it's relatively compact i can do this so so i did that and then there's a I kept going back in time. There was a six-volume work by uh, two authors called Courtepay and Beguier, and they were writing not strictly. So all three of the previous works were just about wine and vineyards. Cortepé and Beguier were writing about the history of Burgundy, so very little of it was about vineyards, actually. Beguier was an agronomist, though and had written other books on wine. He was the real wine guy, but everybody just says court de pay. But uh, it's very interesting. So he's the one who actually went into the archives and did all of the research about what the monks were writing, you know, 1,200 years ago. And, and he was writing in the 1770s, sort of uh, a generation before the French Revolution. And uh, that's a fascinating work. And so far, all of those works, in fact, no, I think everything I translated is available in the public domain for anybody that... Is interested in digging around either sort of Google Books. The Bibliothèque Nationale in France has a website, or there's a few other special resources. All of them uh, in the bibliography, but uh, it was a, it was a great break for me because I didn't have to go sit in a dusty library and translate. I could I had them all in my laptop. I was traveling around working as a head of department at Christie's, and and uh, wherever I was on an airplane, I could just whip out the laptop and start translating a few paragraphs. So I just like slogged through it. For three years.
0: That was probably a big change from when you originally thought about doing it. You know, that fifteen-year period, there probably wasn't Google Docs around.
1: No, there wasn't. No, at the beginning, it was literally somebody had taken a hard copy and had photocopied every page, and then had uh, changed the photocopies into a PDF. And that's that's the format that I originally had it in. But uh, by the time I actually sat down to write it, all of those sources were available. A few of the volumes of, for some reason, not all six volumes of Court to Pay are on. Uh,
0: google docs but i got it at the new york public library which is a marvelous institution so you start the process and you decide instead of just translating one author to translate the relevant sections that corresponded among several and then put them in one volume
1: exactly so what i did is they all organized it slightly differently some went north to south some went south to north some like julien doesn't even have a geographic reference. He just lists the villages according to what he considered to be their rank. So the first-class wines, the second-class wines, uh, all jumbled up, mixed in the Côte Chalonnez, the Côte d'Or. And so what I did is I straightened everything out and made it, organized it village by village, north to south, and compared the views of all the authors, and then in turn compared what those authors, the sort of the antique authorities, what they thought compared to the AOC system that was put in place in 1936 and uh, was was more or less put in place solidly in one block in 1936. But in Burgundy, uh, uh, more so than other regions, really, it was tweaked over the years and stuff was added. They're still adding and subtracting to AOC. So it's not really, you know, people have this view of Burgundy, like it's monolithic and and it's uh, carved in stone and nothing ever changes, but things are changing all the time. And, uh, that's one of the things you realize with a project like this, that it's, you know, it, it might seem like it's one way, it might even seem like it's been that way, but it's really just a generation or two. But when you look at those vineyards, those vineyards have been there for, you know, 20 generations, 30 generations, and stuff changes.
0: One of the things that was interesting to me was that when I was reading the book, it wasn't, you know, you you had made a, a reference earlier to the way the winemaking changed, but it seems like also the topography of the vineyard area changed a lot in terms of what grape variety was planted and then how big that planting was.
1: Oh, definitely. You know, it was, um, it's been a struggle over the years. Uh, Pinot is relatively difficult to grow Pinot Noir and, uh, it's unstable. It doesn't yield well. And it's not nearly as, as easy to grow as Gamay, for example. And they've been trying to slap down Gamay and Burgundy for the longest time. And, uh, one of the main fixations of Laval is how much Gamay is planted, and and uh, he considered it a completely worthless grape. But that's a view that goes back to the 14th century. Louis the Hardy said... Uh, in in 1341, that uh, the, all Gamay and Burgundy needed to be r- ripped up and uh, replaced. So uh, it's been it's been despised for quite a long time. But uh, Pinot Noir itself actually is thought to be of Burgundian origin. People fight about that all the time. Some people say no, it's from Germany. Other people say Russia. If you read Jancis's great book on on grapes, um, you'll see that there's a lot of different theories. But most people agree it's it's a native Burgundian
0: grape and uh so it's it's been there since the romans have been there really how did the vineyard size change i mean you make reference in your book to the cote djeney which is an area i don't even really much think about outside of a certain uh, Montrecole bottlings
1: yeah exactly show us your panties that's a that's <laughs> a fantastic name for a vineyard really and uh which is what it means directly translated into english and it was supposed to be that the it's it was close to Dijon and uh, and so the women would harvest it and the men would go to work the vineyards that were further away and they would stay home and work that vineyard and then do the stuff around the house that they had to do. And the the name was given because it was supposedly because it was on a slope. And so the women were doing the harvesting and you could look up and see their panties. So so they gave it the name. It was actually pretty highly regarded. It's Today, it's right in the outskirts of Dijon itself. There used to be a little village called La which doesn't exist anymore. It's been sort of subsumed into the the mass of uh, Dijon, and uh, it's right—it's right there. The vineyard is still is still planted, but it's uh, it's no longer uh, regarded as any. You can only call it uh, Bourgogne or Bourgogne Montrecule. And uh, that whole part area right around Dijon, there's uh couchy Chenot, which are not very well known, although they have notable sites and go back to the seventh century, for example but um but there's still plenty of interesting things going on in Fissan and uh Marcinay, and I've come to find there's some really really compelling stuff I mean Fissan is home to Claude la Perriere and Claude La Perriere is a clos. Built by Cistercian monks, in believed to have been started in the 10th century, around 990 AD, and the walls are still there. It's crazy. It's uh, it's comparable to any of the great Cistercian sites of the Middle Ages, and and it's it's there in one block. The walls of the clo are still there. It's all owned by one person. It's a five hectare vineyard, which was considered by Laval and uh, many other authorities to be on a par with sort of clo de beds like you know right at the top of the Burgundian hierarchy. And today it's a relatively forgotten, uh, premier crew in Fissin and nobody, nobody gives it any, any love, but, uh, except me, I went to visit and it's a really cool place. The, the same, winery where the monks made the wine a thousand years ago is still there. It's still used by the you know family that owns it, the Joliet family. And uh, I think those wines have to make a comeback because it's, it's really great
0: juice. But you saw some historical references that indicated at one time they were quite esteemed. Quite esteemed, yeah, definitely. Considered a tête de cuvee. So the, all we
1: use the terms Grand Cru, Premier Cru, and then, you know, village for the to Demarcate the different levels of Burgundy. That's sort of a dumbing down of the system that used to exist. Uh, what Laval used, which was probably the most detailed iteration of the classification, was uh, he he had all of the top level as Tete de Cuvée. So the the head of the blend, really. But that was his his ultimate distinction was Tete de Cuvée. Even though he did vary from that a few times, but essentially it's Tete de Cuvée. And then there's Premier Cuvée, Deuxieme Cuvée, Troisieme Cuvée, Quatrieme Cuvée. And uh, so so it's essentially a five-part delineation. Just like in Bordeaux, it's a the classification of the Bordeaux properties is a five-part classification. But it was it was deemed in eighteen sixty, right after Laval was writing by the the Bone Committee of Agriculture to be uh, too unwieldy and uh, they didn't like five, so they, they broke it down to three. And theirs was premier class, deuxième class, troisième class, and then that sort of system was adopted more or less in the AOC classification, which, uh, for example, the classification in Bordeaux is not a part of the AOC regulations. In Burgundy, it is. You have Grand Cru, Premier Cru, then uh, village appellations, and then generic appellations.
0: And uh, and those are on the label that way. Like, right. It says Balmar, Grand Cru, Appellation Controle. Right, exactly. But that's a more simple grouping than Laval would have had, where he had five distinctions, and the, the members of that group would have been smaller, basically. There would have been less entries per grouping. Right, exactly. Yeah, Laval's
1: uh, system was was very complete and very nuanced, and that's what I love about it. It gives you all the different shades of quality of the different vineyards, and the, some of the vineyards are divided into two, and part is one, part is another one. Today, they, they sort of paint with a broad brush you know everything's lumped into either it's you know most of it is village and then there's premier cru, and then there's a tiny tiny bit of grand crew but there there would have been many more grand crus in Laval's day notably in the Côte de Bonne, where you know there's there are very few as you know there's Corton red and white and then they're the ones around uh, Montrachet and essentially that's it there's none for red wine other than Corton and uh you know, back in the day, they had Grand Cruz or Tete de Cuvee, if you will, in uh, Volnay in uh, Merceau, technically, because Volnay Santeno. We call it Volnay Santeno. It's actually in the village of of Merseau Santenay. Had some Savigny Le Bon. Even had uh, Le Vergeless. Uh, La Bataillère, part of the Vergeulasse vineyard in uh, savigny le that's that uh, was considered at that at that level. So there was a, you know, in, in Bonne itself, in fact, there were têtes de cuvées, Les Greves, Les Fèves, Aigros, a number of different, uh, Liudy in Bone had that same distinction. And today all that's been stripped away. So uh, the reason, a lot of, there are a couple different reasons that that could happen. And some of it happened because certain vineyards were underperforming when the classification was done, uh, so they were left out for that reason. That was the case notably with Claude Laperien. Um, They said the proprietor back in the 30s had let a lot of the vines die but it's not to me it's not the interest is really what's the value of the terroir not what is this proprietor doing or the you know the last generation of growers because uh, growers come and go but the land is there forever you know so uh, that was the interest for me another reason that a lot of these got left out is because they were going to be taxed at a higher rate if they went into a higher group and remember the AOC was put in in the middle of the great depression the times were tough as about as I mean, outside of the two world wars, about as tough as it, as it gets. You had Phylloxera, World War I, Great Depression, World War II. It ain't easy. So a lot of them sort of opted out of, of being Grand Cru's then. And, of course, now when you look at the price differential of, of what you get if your wine is Premier Cru or Grand Cru, uh, it totally makes sense to try and catch up, but uh, it's been a long process for those people who were kind of left behind. You know, La Grande Rue got promoted, uh, Claude L'Hombré got promoted, uh, and there are other promotions that are either being talked about or argued about. Or The thing is, all the growers in the village have to agree. So the growers in Nuit Saint-Georges today have decided to apply for Les Saint-Georges, which they definitely should. It's It was long considered the tête de cuvee status makes fantastic wine it's almost universally recognized to be of extraordinary quality but uh, rumor has it or the record shows that uh, back in the 30s Henri Gouge who's uh, you know the emblematic domain of the time didn't want it to get promoted so that he wouldn't have to pay the tax and he talked to everybody into voting against it so Les Saint-Georges didn't apply back then, and they've been sort of struggling with it ever since. And so today, the growers sort of led by Thibault Liger Belair have uh, put the brief before the INAO, and supposedly they're going to be voting on it soon. So it's, uh, even today, it's, uh, there's, there are uh, villages that are trying to get this promoted or that promoted. There's another effort underway at the same time, i.e. currently, in uh, Pomard. They're trying to get Epinot, Grand Epinot, Rougien, and a couple other UD to be uh, promoted to Grand Cru, but that's, that's I mean, I think Les Saint Georges has history on its side, has pricing on its side, has you know a concerted effort over many years. The Pomard effort is is going to be a much longer haul.
0: One of the things you mentioned in the book is that Les Saint Georges may have been held back by fragmented ownership, by the fact that there wasn't one chief holder of the property at the time that could really push it through. And one of the things your book charts is vineyard holdership over time. So, Clos we think of it as broken up into a number of owners, but you talk about how at one point, or for a long time, it was one owner. Whereas La Romani, a vineyard that we think of as under one owner, used to be many different owners. How does vineyard ownership affect the view of vineyards in the past, and how is that different than today? You know, it's a really
1: fascinating question because uh, one of the, the big puzzles for me, when you read Laval, he has three vineyards at the top. It's Romani Conti, it's Chambertin, it's Claude Bujot, And all the authors writing before him had more or less that same list. Uh, you know, from book to book to book, they all had Claude Bujot up there with Romani Conti and, and uh, Chambertin. And that's, that's I mean, I think most uh, collectors today would get Romani Conti and they'd get Chambartin, even though Chambartin, there's a lot of owners in Chambartin, but the thing about the Clos de is that until the 1870s, it was all under uh, sole ownership. So the vineyard was pieced together starting in 1100 AD, and it took the monks about 200 years to get all those parcels together, and once they got them all together, they built a wall. And so... From the early 13th century, it's been under one ownership, and it was the monks until the French Revolution, and they all got their head chopped off, and uh, then they sold it, uh, and then it changed hands again, eventually coming into the ownership of a famous family called the Ouvrad family, who were bankers to Napoleon, essentially, and uh, made a huge pile of money. They used to have uh, extensive, extensive vineyard holdings. And he, the Ouvrard family kept it intact until the 1870s. And so that whole time, what they did is they'd harvest all the fruit, they'd make a selection. Just like in Bordeaux, when you make it in Burgundy, the land holdings are too small to do uh, like a first wine, a second wine. You just take everything, you vinify it together. You you throw out what you have to throw out and and make a selection that way. But you're not making two wines. But in the Claude Bougeot, was different. They could actually make three different wines. And, and it used to be referred to as the monk's portion, the king's portion, and the pope's portion, with the pope getting the best uh, part of the deal there. But um, religious people. You there know, you go. They that's didn't give a, the best part to the king. That, so. That's how they were. Different roll priorities, back then. Back then. right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you so you would have a, a, essentially a selection of of what was best. And when you when a vineyard that size is a fifty hectare vineyard. That's you know at two point four seven uh, acres uh, to a hectare. You're looking at about one hundred and twenty five acres. It's it's a pretty big site, you know, and it makes sense that not all of that property is going to make the same quality of wine. And so it starts at the top of the hill and it goes all the way down to the road that uh, the Route de Grand Cru, which uh, in most villages, that's the dividing line, and the stuff on the other side is just regular generic Bourgogne Rouge. And the stuff on the other side of the road is village level, and then partway up the slope is Premier Cru, and then the sort of mid-slope is the Grand Cru sites, and then at the top again is, is more Premier Cru. That's how it is in most villages, although it's hard to generalize. But anyhow, in uh, Claude Bougio, it's all Grand Cru. And there's a lot of people that say it shouldn't be. Well, today, you can kind of pick or choose because there's over 80 owners to the the Claude Vujo. Nobody's making three separate wines out of their parcel. Even the largest holding, which is Chateau de la Tour. Well, actually, Chateau de la Tour makes uh, two different uh, cuvées. They have sort of a super cuvee. It's an interesting uh, undertaking that they have there. But for most of the landowners in the Claude Vujo, there's not the option to do that. The other thing that people didn't know is that, or not People, but some people anyhow didn't know is that the Claude Bougeau actually was subdivided into a lot of uh, small U D. Um, there's a map that was published by the Testaban that explains the names of all of them and shows the ownership of all of them. But uh, over time, uh, people sort of forgot that uh, in the in the AOC regulations, there's only one U D. and that's Claude Bougeau. There's not uh, there's none of the separation, but it's really a, a much more nuanced uh, picture. Back, you know, 150 years ago, than we have today, and so uh, to discover all of that from reading Laval and Morello and these old sources to me was
0: hugely exciting. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is that there's a soil difference. That there's a big piece of Jurassic limestone at the top of the vineyard, and that is more clay as you go further down.
1: Right, that. exactly. All the all the the uh, cap and slope vineyards and the Cot d'or are like that they're all on a base of of limestone which is you know pretty much at the top is at, at its thinnest point and then there's the slope which is you know more clay until you get to the bottom and then there's alluvial matter and and then there's breaks in the underlying limestone and the uh, different strains of limestone sort of rise and fall throughout the length of the code so there's a lot of differences you know underground that uh you need to pay attention to if you want to um, uh, really understand Burgundy. That's one of the things that Morlo was great. That's why I decided to translate Morlo in addition to Laval is because he had all this stuff about the the geolo- underlying geology that was fascinating that uh, Laval hadn't included. So,
0: And it's interesting to contrast that Claude Vujo move from one owner to many with La Romani, which is not one owner, but used to be several parcels.
1: Right, exactly. Well, there was, it was never called La Romanée at all. It was part of it was Romani Saint Vivant, part of it was Richebourg, and you know, it all got uh, pieced together by the ligier Belair family, mid nineteenth century, and uh, they called it La Romanée—a brilliant marketing move on their part. But uh, when you're there looking at the site, you can see, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. What he did, you know, he just sort of took a, a snippet of uh, four different uh, pieces and put it together. And but it's it's a contiguous hole and, and it's a, a very logical vineyard site and of course now it has its own little wall around it and uh, it's a great
0: vineyard and you mentioned that the prince conti actually never called his own vineyard romani conti the one that's below
1: no no everybody else did because that was his name he you know actually he just took it off the market there's a baller for you. He, he <laughs> bought this vineyard at, at like a 10x multiple of the going rate back in the day and just, you know, had the wine made, was gave very explicit instructions to the people who were managing the vineyard for him that he wanted it to be done in the, in the way that... Uh, not only then, but even still today is the way, you know, like lowering the yields and, and doing everything, not putting too much uh, fertilizer on, you know. But uh, anyhow, he gave these very explicit instructions to make the wine as carefully as possible and then uh, deliver it all to his house because he was going to drink it all. He didn't sell a drop. And, uh, and it was just La Romane from uh, Romane Saint-Vivant, which was the the monks of the... Abbey de Saint-Vivant de Vierzy, which is at the top of the hill. And uh, that's a kind of an interesting place. Aubert de Villene is trying to bring it back. Uh, it's it's sort of a ruin now, but they're investing in it, definitely. And it's an interesting thing. There used to be a fortress up there. It was one of the biggest, most powerful fortresses when, it, when Burgundy was a separate kingdom, which obviously was the um, the sworn enemy of the kingdom of France. And uh, people forget that they weren't always on the same side, The you know, the Bordeaux was ruled by the English. Burgundy was its own kingdom. Kingdom of France was much smaller. And uh, and then you had Champagne that was sort of in between. The Counts of Champagne ruled the part that was in between what was technically, quote-unquote, France and what was the Kingdom of Burgundy. And there was a lot of tension going on back and forth until it was all resolved in the favor of the King of France in the
0: 16th century. And you probably wouldn't have thought of Chablis as part of Burgundy back then.
1: No, no, definitely not. It was... Uh, actually a uh, its own the area around uh around uh, Auxerre which is the, the administrative capital of the region was a, a sort of a independent not independent but you know not part of Burgundy not part of uh, Champagne and it's, it was its own sort of a thing it's it's still kind of its own sort of a thing if you drive through there it's a fascinating part of France
0: to visit so back to the Vaughan landscape for a moment you talk significantly about the changes in perception of Romney Saint-Vivant, and then also a changing in understanding of what Richeport is, and what did you find when you did that? All all of those
1: vineyards today, obviously they all touch each other, and, and they're all contiguous, but the, the esteem that they've been held in and the way the lines have been drawn has definitely changed over the years, and uh, I think today people see Romani. Romani Saint-Vivant was once included, obviously, all of Romani Conti, all of Romani, all of everything was owned by the monks. And then little bits of it started to get uh, teased out and separated. And uh, each of them, in fact, has a very distinctive terroir and each of them makes a very different wine. And I think you know, Romani Saint-Vivant from the the foot of the slope is very different from uh, the higher reaches of Richebourg, for example.
0: But what did you find when you revisited the old authors? What did they have to say about those areas?
1: Most of the the uh, portions were very highly regarded, but some more so than others. So some of it was in Tete some of it was in Pommier Cubé, there was none of it that was in uh, Douziam Cube, but that's sort of the, the Laval classification. The other authors that didn't break it down as... Minutely, as Laval did, for example, André Julien, you know, had the Romani-Conti portion above the p- portion that was Romani-Saint-Vivant, and they each had the one was first, one was second. Um, so they each referred to it in a slightly different way.
0: And what about the terminology? I mean, where does the name Romanée come from? Is that a Roman reference? It's thought to be a Roman
1: reference, but it uh, can't be established directly. In fact, there's a really great book that talks about the origin of each of the place names in Burgundy and uh, it's actually very interesting when you are getting into a wine and drinking it to figure out where the name came from. And it, it is thought to refer to to the Romans ultimately, but uh, actually referred to the path that the monks would take that went up the hillside to the Abbey of uh,
0: Verzy. So not necessarily a vineyard, but the path between the vineyards.
1: Right, exactly.
0: What about the Chambertin family? What did you find as you delved into the historical references about Chambertin and its neighbors? Well, Chambertin is a
1: very old site, and Claude de Bez is a very old site, and... Uh, they, they're they distinct, but they were sometimes confused. But Chambertin has always been considered a very homogenous vineyard. And in spite of the fact that it's owned by a bunch of people today, there's nobody that's saying a part is better than another part. Uh, and most people agree that although Claude Bez and Chambertin are very different, Chambertin is a cooler terroir and uh, Claude Bez is a warmer terroir just because of the soil type and the, the way the... Uh, Slope is, but they're they're both considered very top notch vineyards. But uh, when they were putting the AOCs together in the 1930s, they added a lot of other a lot of other vineyards were able to uh, hyphenate the name Chambertin. They were all promoted to Grand Cru. So you have Mazi Chambertin, you've got Rousseau Chambertin. Those are on the same side of the road, at least as uh, Claude Bez and uh, and uh, Chambertin itself. But then there are other portions that are on the quote unquote wrong side of the road like Mazoyer-Chambertin, or Charme-Chambertin, Chapelle-Chambertin, and those are a completely different thing, and none of those were considered uh, the same level of quality. In fact, even parts of Mazi were considered uh, inferior, well, inferior, how inferior can you be here? It's Mazi chambertin but you know, (laughs) inferior to Chambertin itself, for example parts of Ruchot, uh, but all of Mazweya was considered to be, uh, you know, a step down, and parts of it were considered to be two steps down. And so, today, to classify all of that as Grand Cru is is really, uh, you know, a simplification. And then, when you get down to what's the wine in the bottle, I think you can easily make the argument, for example, that the Charme Chambartin from, from Rousseau is still damn good juice, you know. But if somebody just coming in from the outside and saying uh, uh charme chambertin is is grand crew, therefore all charme chambertin is extremely high quality that's not true across the board there's some that are far from grand cru quality in my view uh, i think the system that we have now is is a very effective system and it's a commercially very viable and and uh relevant system, but it does sort of simplify some of those very fine differences that people were alive to in the past that they aren't anymore.
0: And how is the understanding of Moray as a place and and then Chambord as a place evolved over time?
1: Well, you know, they didn't have as strong a, of an identity as, as Gervais uh, Chambartan, for example, or, you know, Von further down. And uh, so I think, you know, they've struggled a little bit. And a lot of the not all of the Grand Cru's, but uh, in, in Maury and Chambol, have changed that much over time. Meusini is for example, is uh, an amazing Grand Cru that hasn't changed very much at all over time. But some of them, like uh, Claude La Roche, was assembled. Claude La Roche, uh, Claude saint for example, both of them, and Claude Lombré, were assembled over time with little bits added in here and there. And the, the modern extent of the vineyard was not the extent of the vineyard then. In fact, uh, Claude La Roche is sort of three times larger than it was. So uh, uh, close saint denis is uh, two times larger than it was. And uh, that's just putting together different vineyards. And the reason that they would do that is that if if it can be shown historically that wine that came from that parcel was sold as Claude La Roche, even though it wasn't Claude La Roche, then they said, okay, you can add it in. That was the the basis for doing the AOC classification, and, and it was considered as legitimate. And in some instances, it was... Uh, Green lighted in other instances, it wasn't. For example, Latash is one of the, the more interesting examples. It's uh, Latash itself is pretty small, and then there's Godish Show. Godish Show is, is much larger than the original Latash, and now it's all called Latash because they had a court case and they decided that. Uh, Godi- well, it's not
0: all called, but there's a big part of it that is. There's I a mean, big, there's yes. still a part that's called Godish
1: Show. Yes, there's, a, there's probably there's a Crew Godish Show as right, well, right. actually, which a lot of people don't realize. But um, what's con- today considered Latash is partly Latash, partly Show. However, there's another example. There used to be called uh, Clos Saint Jacques Chambertin, and uh, it was uh, it was decided that it was the Comte de Moucheron that used to own the he used to be the sole proprietor of the Clos Saint Jacques in Gevrey, and he used to label it. In fact, I, I saw an old bottle. I took a picture of it and posted it. and That was kind of weird. It said it said uh, Clos Saint Jacques Chambertin. And uh, he got kind of slapped down in the courts <laughs> over that one, but in other instances it was completely allowed, and they said, "Sure, go right ahead." And
0: so, moving to the Côte de Beaune, you mentioned already that there's some ideas to get certain parts of Pomar promoted, and that also perhaps certain parts of Volnay were in higher esteem in the past.
1: There's a really great terroir in Volnay. I'm crazy about Volnay, and I think a lot of people would be really irritated if they upgraded some of it and it all got more expensive because to me, Volnay is an amazing value for what it is. when you when you're driving down the Cote de Bonne, if you go like this summer and you look at it when it's uh, when the uh, leaves are on the vines, absolutely stunning. It makes like an amphitheater of, of vines and it, it really sort of focuses the sun in and a lot of those terroirs are absolutely superb. Cat, champagne. And then you have the ones that are sort of close into the village as well, like the Clos de du Duc and the Clos de Cellier de du Duc, the Clos de la Cave de du Duc, uh, all of those. Used to be, they used to just be called Le Village, but they've given them separate sort of fancy names now. But there's a lot of really great uh, property in, in Volnay, and in that essentially that whole slope there is making
0: fantastic wine. And what did the historical commentators say about Volnay
1: was was seen—it's a very interesting question, actually— in Laval, it's got to be a typo. Laval has Caire and Champagne at the very head, of, and then and then he includes a number m- more, another seven that in as Tete de Cuvée, which is his highest classification. But I think then he goes straight into Douzieme Cuvée. So I think part of those were meant to be Premier Cuvée, but. Uh, it's not listed that way in my copy of Laval, working from the 1855 text. Maybe
0: the typesetter was from Volney. Huh? Yeah,
1: you never know. But uh, suffice it to say that a lot of them, uh, a lot of those Ludi were considered to be of extremely high quality. Uh, the same is true of uh, Morlow. Of course, he's from Volney, so he was given a shout-out to the homeboys. And uh, and then André Julien also was singing the praises of Volney. So everybody saw Volney as having vineyards that that were worthy of being at the very highest level. But uh, it, it's the ancient summer home of the Dukes of Burgundy. They they would live in Dijon, and then when they wanted to kick back in the summertime, they'd go down to Volnay. And um, so the vineyards were, first of all, were very prestigious because of that ownership, you know, prior to the getting slapped down by the King of France. But they were never promoted to Grand Cru, and uh, the reason probably has to do with taxation, as it did in so many other instances. But uh, to me, it's very fertile picking grounds for
0: people that want Grand Cru wine at Premier Cru prices. What about some of the white areas of the Cote Bonne with the Montrachet area and some of the hyphenated Montrachets?
1: Well, you know, most of those, I did a very interesting tasting last summer called Around Montrachet, where we had Morachet, and Batard, and Chevoye, and Bienvenue, and Criotte and uh, they were, those were all pretty worthy. And there's other uh, bits around there, like OMEI, for example, that uh, while not having the same concentration or depth as any of the Montrachés are still extraordinary wines, uh, and those have been producing white wine for a long time, but a lot of what's today producing white wine in Pouligny, in Merceau, and especially in Chassagne was once red wine territory. And in fact, most of it was red wine territory until relatively recently, and it White wine is has always gotten the sort of short end of the stick in Burgundy. And maybe with the, maybe with Primox now, it's going to go back to that. But uh, it would be a shame because they're making some extraordinary wines. I'm not saying, you know, should be or shouldn't be. I think everybody should grow what they feel is best suited there. But some of those terroir, like Boudreaux today is making both red and white in Chassagne. But the Clos Saint-Jean is almost exclusively white wine and uh, total percentage has gone, you know, years and years ago, back in the day, it was more than 70% red, and now it's more than 90% white.
0: And do you think that that had to do with the esteem associated with Moroche and then higher prices for whites from the surrounding zone?
1: That's probably part of the explanation. And the other part is probably the fact that Chardonnay is easier to grow. And so it's partly a a logical outgrowth of the quality of, you know, some of those vineyards and trying to uh, attach themselves onto that. And then uh, partly also just the exigencies of being a grower.
0: What about another area where you see white and red kind of going back and forth, which is the Hill of Corton? What did you find when you look back at the commentators about Corton.
1: Corton, you know, Corton itself is really just a 10-hectare parcel. And the Corton Appellation today is 160 hectares. It's the single biggest example of vineyard creep that we have in uh, in Burgundy. And, and that's a very interesting question because most of the historical part of Corton is more suited to white wine than to red wine. And today, there's much more red wine than white wine produced in some of those parts that were, you know, historically the other way around. There definitely are parts of that vineyard that should be red and parts that should be white, and the the lines are very hard to draw exactly. I think partly because of the sort of the dilution of the name, Corton has suffered and the wines don't fetch the prices that they probably should. And that's partly due to certain growers that are underperforming maybe, or to the fact that certain terroir that are less apt to produce Grand Cru quality juice are lumped together with those that are. There's obviously some absolutely superb terroir on the on the hill of Corton. And there's, without a doubt, some people are making extraordinary wine there. Like the Clos de Beaujau, for me, it's a place that's Currently classified as grown crew, where you can get some some really exceptional bargains. I mean, I love Burgundy. I really love Burgundy. Sometimes Burgundy can be expensive. You know, there's
0: a I've lot heard of, that rumor. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, you know, to me, anytime it jumps to four figures, it's kind of a little bit of a stretch. I'm not saying I'm not going there, but you know, I have to you know.
0: I'm not going there. I'll say it for you.
1: <laughs> I, have to, I have to keep my wife happy in that regard. So uh, if I'm buying those wines, she doesn't have to know how much they cost. But in Claude Bougeau and in Corton, you can definitely get wines for, you know, like in the one to $200 range, which, while not cheap, is certainly a far cry from what you're going to spend for, uh, you know, uh, forget the Romanes, uh, but even what you'd spend for, a uh, you know, a, a malconsort or a Uh, Shambhal Moruz, for example and uh, to me that's that's really an interesting development but you sort of have to know the vineyards and who the growers are to be able to pick out the ones that are a great deal because you could spend almost that much and get something that's not at all as pleasant
0: And it seems like the book you just came out with would be helpful for doing that Indeed, that's the whole reason for writing it Like you wanted to find undervalued terroirs that were That's me, you got me Levy I'm a cheap bastard What can I tell you? (laughs) But what else did you discover? I mean, what other surprises came along the way in terms of, oh, I didn't know that terroir was so special, but all these historical commentators are saying it's amazing.
1: That's yeah, that's definitely, you know, in in almost every village. We talked about a lot of the examples, like Claude La Perrier was the one of the first ones you come to if you're going north to south, but you end up on a very interesting one as well, which is the Claude Tavan in Santenay. Who thinks about Santenay these days? You can buy a great to Santenay for $35 or $40. And just about everybody can afford $35 or $40. And some of those Sontanets are really extraordinarily delicious. And, you know, for a region that has a wrap as being expensive and some people would even say overpriced, I think there's still intense value in Burgundy. You just have to know a little bit to unearth it.
0: Back to promotions a bit. With La Grand Rue, shortly before also uh, Lambray was promoted, and we touched on Lambray. Briefly, but what was the history of the Lambre parcel? I mean, it's often thought to be a monopole, although it's not. But what did you find when you looked It's back?
1: That's an interesting comment. It is often thought to be a monopole, but it's not.
0: There is a very tiny
1: portion that's not owned by the Domaine de l'Ambre. It was, in fact, all owned by the uh, Rodier family. Camille Rodier is the one who wrote the last book that I refer to in, in my work, uh, uh and his family w- were negociants for many years. And they actually controlled more even than the present Domaine de l'Hombre controls. And they're the ones that kind of stuck all the bits together to make the present Clos de L'Hombre, Because it wasn't, part of it was a Clos, but part of it wasn't. And it was, all, it was all included together under their ownership of it. And, and then uh, it's one of the few that actually was stuck together and kind of stayed stuck together. And of course, now it's been sold to LVMH. And I'm sure, knowing their track record, they're going to invest in that and turn it into a real gem. Not that it it wasn't a gem, but it was an inexpensive gem, and one wonders if it will stay that way.
0: So, you know, 15-year process writing the book, what are the real takeaways for you now that it's finally out?
1: The real takeaway is that I've just barely scratched the surface, and it's a nice introduction. In fact, you know, Levi, I was thinking as I was I was working on this, I could just write this book forever. But then I said, no, that's kind of stupid. You need to like, you know, draw a hard line in the sand, get it out there, and then you can go on and do the next project. So I definitely have a, a next Burgundy project in the works that I, I don't want to tell you about because somebody might steal my idea. But, um, but I do have another... W- Burgundy topic and then another one behind that. To me, it's endlessly fascinating. And uh, the the history of the region and the people of the region and the food of the region, as well as the delicious wines that we all know are are reason to keep me coming back year after year. You chose to self-publish the original Grand Cruise of Burgundy, and why'd you go that route? You know, I tried so hard after I got my MW in 2004 to publish a book, and it seemed like no agent wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole, in spite of the fact that I'd just become a master of wine, and uh, you keep getting pushed back to the effect that uh, they wanted to be more mass market. So can't you, you know, effectively dumb it down? And eventually, I just decided that you know my consulting career was going pretty well and it wasn't like I needed the book to pay the rent and I just wanted to write the book I wanted to write so I decided to self-publish and and I think you know the thing that put me off self-publishing at the beginning when I first started thinking about writing a book you were almost back in the era where you had to buy the whole print run and then sell the copies off as best as you could and and uh, i knew several people that did that and got stuck with the thousands of dollars worth of books but now you have print on demand and even the initial print on demand product to to me it looked cheap and flimsy you could tell it was a book that somebody like made in their basement that was uh, but now the production values are much much higher and it's a in my opinion at least it's a quality looking book it doesn't fall apart as you're reading it and uh And I was really very impressed with the entire process. So in this model, which suited me absolutely perfectly, because it is a sort of arcane wine geek kind of topic, but... People that love wine—they're—they're they're interested in it. So I, I wrote the book myself. Then I hired an editor. Then I hired a copy editor. Then I hired a proofreader, and I hired a designer. So you're into it. By the time you get real professionals to help you, you're probably into it for say ten thousand uh, dollars. But you get to keep a much larger chunk out of every uh, copy that's sold, and and so you actually earn it back pretty quick. And I'm more or less at break even, I think. And it's been it's been a really great process and you know i used i chose there's uh, several different outfits that do it but i figured since most of it probably gets sold on amazon anyhow that i'd go with the amazon imprint which is called create space and uh it's like a dream you just get these emails saying uh this much has been deposited in your account and it just uh, steams along they give you all the tools you need to market it on the internet and then you know the rest is up to you to write a good book get the word out using you know sort of facebook and twitter and all that podcasts and, uh, wouldn't exactly exactly so it wouldn't it wouldn't be suitable for every kind of book but definitely for if you have an a vision of something you want to write and you're getting pushback from a publishing industry that's scared about taking a risk on it, then I totally recommend it to people.
0: And break even seems like a nice place to be at. The book hasn't been out that long.
1: It hasn't even been a year. So yeah, I'm thrilled. It's it's not like it's uh, people are knocking down the doors. But but I have had people come up to me at wine tasting and say, aren't you the guy that wrote that book on Burgundy? I got to tell you, love you, there's nothing better
0: than that. It seems like it's a route that a few other wine writers have also taken.
1: Oh, definitely. The even really famous ones that I admire very much. So you know, Alan Meadow's book on Bone Romanée was self-published, and Neil Martin's book on Palmerol was self-published, and those are really important works that that will last a long time. And uh, I figured if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me, and so hopefully mine will do the same.
0: You've also pondered doing a book on dieting, and how does that play into your own life? <laughs> because
1: I do like to stuff my face. No, I've never done anything other than what French uh, sometimes call les mitiers de la bouche. I trained initially as a chef and worked in restaurants for 13 years before I I made a switch and got out of it and got into wine. And so I've had... uh, a lifelong tendency towards corpulence. And I, I was explaining to you before we started recording that I've, I've actually been quite fat a number of times and recently shed 65 pounds and it wasn't by cutting back on wine. And I, I, I want everybody to know that you can lose a quarter of your body weight and still keep up the alcoholic uh, intake that we've become accustomed to over
0: the years. Because I think as people who are big wine collectors or big fans of wine get older, they sometimes worry about this exact issue. So what would you say to someone who is maybe getting uh, up there in years or, you know, towards middle age and and thought to themselves, boy, I like wine. I don't want to give it up necessarily, but I have to do something about this weight thing, what would you tell them?
1: You know, what my doctor told me, he looked me in the eye and he said, don't worry about the fat, just cut out the carbs. And I thought, you know, I could do that. So pretty much I went home and started thinking about it. And I realized wine has some carbs to it, but I wasn't going to cut that out. And uh, so I looked at the rest of my diet and, and what I did, what was very effective for me, was cutting out anything that has any starch. So no bread, no pasta, no rice, no nothing that's even no beans, nothing from the darchy family of foods at all, then you could keep the wine because you need some carbs. Let's not go completely insane here. But the diet is, you know, essentially high protein, low carbs, lots of fiber, which is a bit of a trick getting enough fiber in there, but but it can be done. And uh, you can do that and and still have a pretty luxury. You have to give up some things like bagels and pizza and hamburgers and, uh, you know, there are certain things that you've got to cut out. But the good news for me was that I could continue to live the sybaritic lifestyle that I'd become accustomed to and, uh, and slim down the way that my wife wanted me to. So it, it was all for the best.
0: Charles Curtis, he's held on to the wine and cut out the carbs. And he just published The Original Grand Cruise of Burgundy. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. It was great fun. Charles Curtis, the publisher and author of The Original Grand Cruise of Burgundy.